Let's pray. Father God, we come to you and I pray that our hearts, our minds, our attitudes are totally in submission to you, that you would take our lives, that you would shape into us those things you desire for us, that you would hear our words of praise and they would resound in heaven in a glorious way that honors you, that allows all the saints and angels of heaven to see that, yes, there are saints on earth who acknowledge you and take time to praise and glorify your name. Help us, Lord, as we learn, as we grow, as we continue to serve you, as we look to you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated, and I'm Pastor Dave Mitchell, and good to be with you again this morning. We've been on a journey on the book of Malachi, I mean the book of the Old Testament and the Minor Prophets. There's 12 of them. Next week we begin a, an extended series on the book of Jonah, uh, but this is the last time we spend sort of one Sunday per minor prophet, and simply minor means it's shorter than the major prophets like Isaiah. And so uh, one, of the, one of the things we always love to do is to make sure we really get into the context and the circumstances of the authors that we study. You may or may not know this, but back in Malachi's day, which is about 440 B.C., they did not have air conditioning. And so we thought, wouldn't it be great if we begin to even feel, even sweat, the way the Jewish people did when Malachi would get up there and preach? And so you're welcome. Uh, we're glad that you can enter into this experience and remember it for a long time. So. Yes, we know that there is no air conditioning. After all, we just spent $300,000, but that's okay. We don't bear a grudge. No attitude problem here. Uh, and so, uh, some reason, it worked all week. It just doesn't work today. So, I'm not going to blame it on Satan, but who knows. Listen, we are, you can fan away. That's okay. I got my water up here. I hope you have water. If you need water, raise your hand. The ushers will bring it. Uh, we just don't want anybody uh, to pass out. That would be nice. Well, listen, we're in the book of Malachi. Malachi is, is one of these great saints. And let me just say this. I love to speak. When we talk about these minor prophets, these sort of obscure books that often we don't read them. Let's, let's admit it, even myself. But they're wonderful books. And here is something I would like to offer. And I, when I went through the book of Zechariah last year, I said this to a lot of the folks that were in that study. Here's something that I would love for you to do, if you can remember this. Some of us in this room are going to die before others of us in this room. And I don't mean to start off negatively, but it's a fact. So if some of you should pass away before I pass away, when you get to heaven, you're going to start meeting people like Malachi and Habakkuk, Haggai, Ezra. When you get there, would you tell them that we spent a whole morning reading and studying their book. And after they fall over in disbelief, help them back up and says, yes, we loved it. Because they're going to say, wow, I knew when I wrote it, it was tough reading, hard to understand, but I'm so thankful to know that here it is 2,400 years after Malachi wrote his book, there are still God's people who are reading and studying it together. So if you can remember that, would you just make a note? when you get to heaven, that after you, you know, you'll probably see some other things you'll be thinking about, but you'll bump into Malachi at some point. 
I want him to know that we honored him for reading his book together. So here are we are in the book of Malachi, and uh, he wants us to restore our hearts to the things that God has for us. And uh, let's see, there we go. We're in good shape. Got everything I need. I love this last verse that's in the book of Malachi because it, it captures what Malachi was trying to do. Here is that verse. He will restore the hearts of, his, of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. That's the last words of the Old Testament. You know, there, there's a little bit of a heavy-handed kind of upset fatherness to that. But it's God's desire for his children, the children that were living in the days about 400 B.C., that God says, I want to restore your hearts. God is a very patient, compassionate, loving, kind God. But throughout the history of the nation of Israel, all the way from the days of Abraham forward, when the Jews were formed through the father Abraham, and then through Moses, and through the times of Joshua, and the judges, and the kings, and now the minor prophets, there's constantly this up and down of a relationship with God. And so now God is giving his last word to the people, and it's through Malachi. Because after Malachi, at the end of the Old Testament, there's about 400 years of silence. There is no more revelation from God until the angels came and Luke records for us this great grand announcement that Jesus is going to be born by a virgin. And so this is the last thing that God says. If you think to yourself, what would be the last thing you'd want to say to your children, your grandchildren, your friends, your close associates? What are those things, if you had nothing else that you were ever going to be able to tell them again, what would you want to tell them? Well, this is what God tells us. And let me just remind you, something I did when I was in Habakkuk a couple of weeks ago, that the Old Testament especially, and also it's true in the New Testament, there's a primary audience and there's a primary application. The primary application of Malachi was to the Jewish people who lived in the nation of Israel, actually Judah. They've returned from the captivity of Babylon, and now they're reestablishing their homes, the temple, and all that. And God says, here are the things that I want you to remember as you get back into the land. That's the primary application. But there's always a secondary application. If we're God's children, then God has things for us as well. We can learn some principles to guide us. And that's what I'm going to pick and choose from this book, some of those areas that I think are important for us to know. I'll put on the top side of the outline. In fact, there is an outline in the bulletin. You will find that you will get actually more out of the message if you actually follow along. But the very top of the outline, I'll outline the book in a secondary principle kind of way. I tell you the essence of what is in each of the sections because God says something and then repeats it back as a question because they don't know what, they're, what God's referring to. And I'll show examples of that. But if you'd like to follow along, that is available for you. Here is the first chapter of Malachi. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, this great prophet. And the first thing that God says to these people who have returned from captivity, who have been stubborn in their hearts, who have resisted his truth, he says, I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you. Ever since the days of Abraham, he has loved them. But here is their response. And they say back to God, how have you loved us. That's a typical pattern. God speaks a truth and they respond with a question. We don't see it. I don't feel it. 
And so they are going through this time of, of challenge, of, of, of understanding how God's love can be real for them. And this becomes critical for any of us who have a relationship with God. If we don't really believe that God loves us, we will be spiritually crippled in our relationship and all the things he asks us to do because we're always going to doubt him, we're going to question him, we're going to have hearts of resentment and attitude problems. And God says, I, do, I don't want that, I do love you. Here are some of the reasons why they are questioning his, God's love. And frankly, there's principles to that as well. They're on the outline, but here are a couple of them. Their lives have been shattered by hard circumstances and significant loss. Way back about 722 B.C., Assyria came in and destroyed the ten northern tribes known as Israel. Then 586 Babylon came in and destroyed the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin. So all of this territory, here's Jerusalem, all this territory became Babylonian controlled. King Nebuchadnezzar was a king. Daniel was taken away in 606 B.C. And so there was just the, the whole city, the temple, the homes, utterly destroyed. It'd be like Canada coming in and utterly destroying this worship center and destroying every home of ours, every apartment of ours in the, in the county of Orange. Th that's what they went through. When you have significant loss and harsh circumstances, you begin to question God's love. And, and that's what's going on. And then they begin to compare. Comparison is a very dangerous thing. They began to look at others who are doing better than they are. One of the areas that they compared in Haggai 2.3 that we won't read, but it's in the outline, is this. They compared the new temple. So they built a new temple. It was finished about 515 B.C., but they're still remembering the temple that Solomon had built. Some of the people that were still alive remember Solomon's great temple. Remember, people would come from all around the world to see Solomon's temple. And so now they have built a new temple, started in 538, finished in 515 B.C., and they're frustrated. In fact, when they saw the foundation that was laid, they mourned, they wept, because it's not nearly as grand, not nearly as big, not as magnificent as what Solomon had built. And so they mourn in comparison. This is pretty trite compared to this majestic building that Solomon had built way back 900 or so B.C. When we compare ourselves with what others have, then we become discouraged, disenchanted. And we begin to think, God, why are you holding out on me? Why shouldn't I have what they have? It could be monetary, it could be a family, it could be kids, it could be a job, a promotion, a lost promotion. Your friend got the promotion, you didn't. My, your friend got into the school you wanted to get into, you didn't get into. There's all kinds of scenarios where we can be as vulnerable as they were questioning the love of God. Some of the things that they were dealing with that made them say, how have you loved us are these. They assimilated too much in the culture of the world. In Hosea 13, 6, it says, and they, they became prosperous and their hearts became proud and they forgot about God. So Hosea is writing a little bit before this time, but it shows the attitude that when we assimilate into the culture and the values of the world, we begin to forget God's culture and God's values and our faith erodes. And then finally, for 70 years, they lacked a full worship of God. For 70 years, they were held captive by Babylon. And what kind of worship they had, we don't know. They may have had no worship because their temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. They've been 
held captive in the countryside of Babylon and just struggling to get along, assimilating into the Babylonian culture, marrying the Babylonian men and women, and, and just sort of losing their Jewish uh, flavor of following God. And when you go through periods where your worship before God is diluted, distracted, forgotten, apathetic, you, you question the love of God. You begin to lose the vitality of a father-son relationship. I remember when I was just getting started in ministry uh, 40-something years ago and had my first church, had my first Sunday school class teaching, teach a Sunday school class, and I would preach in the message and the, and the service. And I remember sitting there in a class, and I was pretty naive, more naive than I am today, just a little bit, and teaching about how God is this loving father who cares for us deeply. As I'm teaching this lesson, there's this a woman who's probably about 30 at the time, and she just breaks out and starts sobbing in the class. And I didn't know what to do. They didn't train you in seminary to deal with sobbing women in your Sunday school class. <laughs> and then finally, when she sort of began to collect herself, she said, when you, when you talk about God the Father as someone who loves us, I can't receive that. I said, well, why is that? She said, because I had an earthly father who abused me, who harmed me in so many ways. And so I can't see a father in heaven because I can only see my father on earth, and that just creates pain. And so when we go through hard circumstances on earth, it does affect, and we can be like these Jews where God says, I have loved you, but you say, how have you loved us? And that's essential to get that right, to allow my heart to be customized by the grace of Christ, to be forgiven, to be set free. And I'm going to talk more about that when we get to it. But the beginning point is to have this kind of love before the Lord so that I can have this new relationship that is vital. And then he goes on and talks about this whole area of worship. So I'm picking on this. In, in Malachi 1.6, he continues to say this. In one six, a son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts? O priests who despise my name. The priests were the religious leaders of the day. And he says to the priests, it would be like saying to me, Dave, you have despised my name. He says, you have despised my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? And that's tragic. The priests have no idea that they are despising the name of God. To be a leader in a church, to be a leader in the temple of 515 B.C., albeit smaller than Solomon's, but still it's a temple, it's a place of worship, it's a place of sacrifice. And those priests had no idea that what they were doing was despising the name of God. They defiled it in verse 7. You are presenting defiled food upon my altar, but you say, how have we defiled you? How have we defiled you? They had no idea. The word defile means a ceremonial pollution of an imperfect sacrifice. It's to, it's to put little worth into something. You are putting very little worth into your worship of me, God says. And these priests say, 
we don't see it. We don't understand it. We're doing the best we can. We have no idea what you're talking about. And that's even more tragic. So the tragedy is that some problems with their worship is this. They had priests, as you see on the outline, when the leaders were unaware of their faulty worship, how have we defiled you? How have we diminished you? When leaders don't see the corruption, the corrosion, the erosion of true worship, we're all in a lot of trouble. The second problem that he pointed out was this. It was not just the leaders, it was the people. The people were bringing these sacrifices when people are not fully prepared, presenting defiled food. What does he mean by defiled food? If you go on to read here in verse 8, but when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? When you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Would you bring this sacrifice to the governor? Governor Zerubbabel was the governor. When you go there, you bring your very best. Are you bringing your very best to me, God is asking them? And what was happening in those days, the primary application, is that they, were bringing the, they, they would bring animals to be sacrificed on the altar at, the, at this new temple they built. And the priests would receive that animal. And what was happening is these farmers, these agricultural people, were bringing in animals to be sacrificed, and they were bringing the, the worst of the animals. They were bringing animals that had broken legs. They were bringing animals that were blind. They were bringing animals that had terrible skin conditions because they say, I don't want that animal. I'm not going to eat it. I might as well bring the least of the animals to worship God. So he can have the animal that's lame, that's blind, that has uh, some sort of skin disease. And he says, you're defiling me with that. And we don't bring animals to the Lord. We don't do that. So what's the secondary application? You know, it takes a lot of work to go through your livestock and find the very best. The Leviticus says it's the unblemished animal that it should be brought to God. So it takes time. It takes preparation. It takes effort to find that animal that is the best of the stock that you have and then bring that animal to the altar for sacrifice. So for me, the secondary application is that it takes time it takes preparation to be ready to worship our God in a way that honors and does not despise or defile my worship. It takes time and preparation. And I'll give some ideas on that in a moment. The last thing that happened here is that their worship became apathetic. Notice in verse 13, if you drop down, it says, You also say, My, how tiresome it is. How tiresome it is to come and worship before me, he says. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what was taken by robbery, what is lame. See the broken boned animal. You bring the lame, you bring the sick, the one has disease, you bring that to me. So you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows, but it sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. I am a great king. I want your very best in worship. So for them, the primary application is to bring the unblemished animal with a heart of praise and thanksgiving to God. And for us, we need to always, always be careful, and includes myself, that we are ready to worship. The solution is, 
is that they needed to spend more time to personally prepare. The priest had to spend more time to personally prepare their hearts to be part of what the worship experience is supposed to include. To say to that Jewish brother or sister that brings the broken, lame, blind animal to them, the priest to say, no, no, I will not sacrifice that to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. That is not ready. You are not ready. Go back and bring your best to me. And for us, we need to be ready. I know even leaders. You know, I went to a, uh, and not to put down anybody else, but it's all anonymous. I remember, and I can do the same thing. I know I can be guilty. I went to a preaching conference uh, a while ago to help me learn how to preach. And so it's always good. And none of us are ever, you know, believe me, all of us who preach up here every Sunday, on Monday morning we're saying, oh, I shouldn't have said, I should have said. Believe me, there's a whole lot of that going on. And uh, so it's just reality. So I went to the preaching conference. I want to learn how to preach. And the, the leader of the preaching conference said, you know, one week he was so busy doing all kinds of other things that he didn't have enough time to study for the sermon on Sunday morning. So he confessed to us. He says, on Saturday night, I listened to, and he named the name. It's probably a name a lot of us would know. He named this person's name. He says, I watched him on video took notes of his message, then I preached his message Sunday morning. And I thought to myself, oh, my heart aches over that. We need to do all that I can. I need to do all that I can. That's one of the reasons why, and I know I've had people complain to me, and not complain, but say, you know, you do all this, all this money you're spending on outlines and paper and stuff like this. A lot of people just don't ever read it. I know that. But I want you to know that every time anybody gets here to preach, and I started doing this like 22 years ago, that every time we get up here to preach, I'm not listening to some fancy preacher on Saturday night trying to figure out what I'm going to say on Sunday morning. These things don't just slap together. I didn't pull it off the Internet. I want you to know that those of us who stand before God with the Word of God have prepared this spiritual meal and it's been thoughtfully put together. And it's important that you hold us accountable. You hold us accountable. If we're slipping, if we're eroding away from that, you need to say something or go to the elders and say something to them because we're here to preach the Word of God. And so it takes time to prepare, but it also it takes this, this whole sense of getting into the Word of God ourselves. Expect to be instructed. From the lips of the priest, he says, should preserve knowledge and men should seek instruction from his mouth. We should go with a hunger for the word of God to hear the word of God so that I can understand it and know it and respond to it. I'll put on the back side of the outline some specific things that we could think about that would help us to prepare a little bit better. Some ideas that I just throw out for your discussion. On item number two under life group discussion, I say this. <clears throat> In what ways do you prepare your heart to worship corporately on Sunday? How would fo the following ways help prepare your heart? And then one thing is to arrive early. Arrive early. Can I lovingly encourage you to at least get here on time? Do you receive that in the spirit of love and what I'm saying it? And I want to make a confession to you. You know, it used to be that I preached here every Sunday morning. <clears throat> when I preached here every Sunday morning, I'd always be early right here in the front, front row. Now, I preach maybe once a month, once every six weeks or so. 
And you know what I discovered? It's easy to stand out there and just chat when the worship music begins. I'm standing out there talking to somebody, and Josh or Ron are already worshiping with music. And so I want to say, I get it. It's easy to arrive late. We go to the Angels game, we get there at the second inning. We think, that's just California, that's Orange County. I say, but that's not heaven. It's not heaven. What would happen if I arrived early and then I read through the passage of the morning and God speak to me through your word? What would happen if I listened to music that praises our Lord and, and just allowed his truth musically to begin to fill my heart? What would happen to my worship experience if I spent time in quiet prayer for God to speak to my needs and offer words of praise for his goodness in my life? How would my worship experience change if I came with this expectation that God is going to speak to me today and my heart needs to be open and ready, unblemished by the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ? That would change dramatically the worship experience of my life. I encourage you, please, I don't want to ever say to God, I thought we were doing a good job, and God says, Dave, no, no. And I don't want us as a congregation to say, we're doing a good job, but God says, I don't know. You're grading on a curve now. <laughs> I want something better. So these are the things that Malachi's teaching to them. These are the things that we need to be aware of. And I, I want to bring your awareness to one other thing. When it comes to the instruction of God's truth and the erosion of the world's, like the Babylonian culture was, was diluting the Jewish faith of the people. There's something that's going on in the public school system that you need to be aware of. There is a seminar coming up, Free Parents and Teachers Conference on Sexuality, Education, and Public School. It's happening this Wednesday night. And I looked at some videos of this new sex ed course that's being produced and going to be taught in the classrooms from kindergarten through 12. And I thought about showing some of the video here today, but with a mixed crowd of various ages, I decided that would be inappropriate. But I'm telling you, if you have children in the public school, if you have grandchildren in the public school, they're going to probably be hearing things that many of us as parents would never want our children to hear. They're going to be taught and encouraged to certain behaviors that we would never teach them or encourage them to do. So I encourage you to check that out. Because we want to be, this is, this is the application of God's Word. That God's Word speaks to a lot of these issues that your children are going to be taught. Some of them can be excused in the lower grades, but not the middle school. Eighth, seventh, eighth grade, transgender, normalcy. Do you want your children to be taught that? I encourage you to check it out. I'm not going to tell every parent what they need to do, but I do want to encourage you to put things like this through the grid of God's Word and make sure you're doing the job as best you can to help your children grow up well. Thank you. Brenda Lebsack is a uh, member of the Unified School District Board on the Unified, Orange Unified Board, Unified, you know what I mean. <clears throat> She's got a bunch of videos 
that she has taken that you will find a great benefit. All right, I gotta move forward, I'm running out of time. The last thing that he wanted us to know about is this. We reflect a restored heart as we obey God with generosity. The generosity that the people would bring their animals to the Lord is part of their tithe, it's their tithe, the giving. It says, will a man rob God? And here's the question, but we're not robbing you, Lord. How are we robbing you? We've never gone into the temple and stolen things from you. No, God says, you're not robbing me. How have we robbed you in tithes and offerings? You're not bringing one-tenth of the animal livestock and your offerings on top of that. You're just not doing your level best to give all that you could be giving. He says, so I'm concerned about that. So he says, I want you to commit to that 10%. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so there may be food in my house. So they would bring their their crops, they might be their livestock, and it would be stored in that temple. It would be stored in the storehouse of the temple. So the priests would have their money, the Levites would have their food, and then they would give it to the orphans, to the poor, the widows. Every third year there's another offering that would be going to them. So there's this whole complex offering system, but here is what God is saying. I want you to make sure that you're doing your best here in 2019. How are we robbing you? By not giving our very best. I'm not asking, he's not saying that it should be 10%, but to bring our very best. So I give in faith. I test me now, he says in this, Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Test me in this. Many years ago, I taught on this, and I called it the tithes of March. And I encouraged us as a congregation in that month of March. I thought it was so clever, the tithes of March. I guess it wasn't that great. But... To give 10% in the month of March, and our offerings went way up. Here is the little practical thing. Michael Wells just did this for this last year. We have uh, 58 people to give $300 a week, and then all the way down here we have 844 people to give $5 a week. Now we're all, we all receive a different amount of money. But I thought, I asked Michael to do, work up a little numbers because I don't do numbers very well, and he, here's what we came up with. In Orange County, the average income of Orange Countyans is about $86,000. If everybody makes $86,000, and I know that some of you make a lot more than that, some of you make a lot less than that. I get it. But if we averaged it out, and everybody gave 10%, our annual income would be 16, almost $17 million. $17 million. Right now we're like at five. Isn't that interesting? Are you feeling guilty? Am I shaming you? I don't know. <laughs> you're saying, Dave, you're talking about money now. That's why I don't come to church. I get it. But I also know what God says. And I don't want to do what the priest of Malachi's day did, where they just sort of compromise. So I'm saying these are some values that God gave to his Jewish people and how should it be translated to us? Now, I recognize that not all of us made 86. Some of you are below 86. So we did a little math. If all of us made $12 an hour minimum wage, if all of us in this room made $12 an hour and minimum wage, and we gave 10% to the Lord, our budget would be almost $5 million. That's about what it is now. I just want to encourage you that I would never want to hear God say to me, Dave, you're stealing from me. And I would say, well, Lord, how am I stealing from you? I never dip into that offering basket when it goes by. He says, Dave, no, you don't dip in. You just don't give enough. 
because I've given you so much. You are a steward of that which I own, and I've given it to you. I expect you then to honor me by giving back your very best. Be fantastic. God would bless us in ways. That's why we have a private Christian school here in our campus. Don't worry about the sex ed stuff that public schools may have. Wouldn't it be fantastic if we had 16 million coming in and, and I've often thought, wouldn't it be great if we had a five, six, seven million dollar endowment to help more children come to our school that couldn't afford to come here? That could pay our teachers a living wage? Wouldn't it be fantastic if we had that kind of resource that could dramatically make a difference in our community, in the lives of our people? And so that's why God challenges us to do our very best because it impacts the world. Now let me finish up. In Malachi 4.2 it says, But for you, this is the last chapter, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Love that, that metaphor, this idea of rising up. The Son of Righteousness, the, like the sun rising in the east in this beautiful array of light. It brings healing to us. And then Malachi says this interesting thing that I didn't know what it meant. meant and you will go forth and skip around like calves from the stall. How about calves from the stall? What does that mean? So because I want you to go home happy, I want you to see what that means and what it looks like. Particularly in Europe, the cows stay indoors all winter. And then come spring is the release of the cows. And it's kind of a thing over there. As people collect and watch, this is the day we release the cows. And so when Malachi is talking about like cows from the stall, this is what he's talking about. Happy cows. So I thought, that's great. I love that. I love it. So they're, they're set free. Now, now I got one more video to en endure with me. I love this one. This is one cow. It might be a bull. I don't know the difference. And it's bound. It's captive. And it's dark. Think metaphorically while you watch this, and I'll bring it home for you as this cow is set free. Watch. Think about that cow, and I don't want to get carried away, but Malachi's the one who brought it up. <laughs> Here's the calves released from the stall. This 
cow was released from bondage, set free, and danced and rolled around in the hay, and then came to the man who set him free. And almost like he bowed in worship, right? I know I'm getting a little carried away, but bowed and honored before him and respected him. And Jesus Christ came into this world to do just that. Jesus would read from Isaiah, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted, to proclaim captives will be released, to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be free. Jesus Christ came to set us free from the bondage and the darkness of sin to restore our hearts to an almighty God who loves us so that we would never question, do you love me? God, we know you loved us. You set me free. And then we go to the master who has freed us and we bow in worship and in giving to thank him for the freedom that is ours. So that's Malachi. Now you got it. That's the heart. So I pray that we never have to ask God, well, I don't know what you're talking about. And God says, no, you should. You should. Let's rejoice in the restoration that Jesus provides as we put our faith and trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins and set us free from everything that holds us back, the bondage of sin. Let me pray for us. I'm going to pray for our offering. We're going to receive it now that God would be honored and glorified as we give to him and Say, Lord, I bring my very best to you. I don't, I don't bring the least, the last, but I bring the first that it would worship and honor and glorify your name. So let me pray. Father God, we thank you that you have given to us these beautiful books from the minor prophets and people like Malachi. Lord, thank you for his boldness. as He said some pretty tough stuff. And we just scratched the surface of all the areas that he I implored the people to get right. Lord, I take to heart those things that I know I need to work on. And I pray that each of us would take to heart those things we should work on. And God, if there are any here that we could help, I pray that they would respond. Even, Lord God, that little card in the chair rack, may they respond saying, yes, pray for me in this area. That I would grow. That I would learn. That I would receive from you. Thank you for this offering. Thank you for the privilege to worship and honor you in so many ways. And we commit our lives to you now in Jesus' name.